55, uh, and then we have a, two or three chapters here where he says that there are yet problems that need to be handled uh, before it again turns very positive. And while we may have a lot of positive things going on, we, we still have growth, we still have need, uh, we still have problems and obviously sins in our lives that we have to continue to clean up. So let's pick it up where we left off last night, going into chapter 57, after he indicates that the leadership in the church is not anywhere near what it ought to be, at the end of chapter 56. And based on the shepherds being referred to as dumb and greedy dogs and, and shepherds that don't understand, in 57 he picks it up there and says, The righteous perishes and no man lays it to heart. Now we've used this verse many times in funerals showing that people live and sometimes they live a good and maybe righteous life but they perish and go into the grave. But I think from a spiritual standpoint, we have to look at it a little differently. We have many people who were called into the church, and uh, they are perishing not only as we grow older physically, but many, many are perishing from spiritual famine and lack of the nourishment they need spiritually to keep them alive and keep them going. Not enough of the Word of God and a lot of the things that men are doing. So the righteous are perishing, they're growing weak, they're not thriving, and it says no man lays it to heart. It's like it just goes on, but nothing is being done about it. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. So they may be dying physically uh, and will not have to go through a lot of what is about to come uh, in, in terms of physical life. But can we also consider that God is going to take those who will be righteous away on a spiritual level, well physically of course, but from all of this trouble that is about to break forth on the earth. He's promised if we will serve Him, that we will miss out on the worst of it. He shall go into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. So, there's trouble on every side, and people are perishing. But those who do what is right will go in peace and rest in their beds, not their graves, it says each one walking in uprightness. So, walking upright, serving God, is what will preserve us in these horrible times that we see coming upon us. Then he contrasts that. He says, But draw near here, you sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Uh, says, the righteous are going to rest in their beds. They're not going to have the same kind of problem. But those of you who are not willing to serve God, uh, come here, listen to what he has to say, he says. Against whom do you sport yourselves? Or, to put it in modern vernacular, who do you think you're kidding? Against whom make you a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? 
Are you not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? We can open our mouths wide. We can justify ourselves. We can minimize our sin with the things we have to say. Make excuses. But no matter what you do, are you not the children of transgression and a seed of falsehood? So he says, let's not kid ourselves. Let's be honest here. Let's not be deceitful and desperately wicked. But recognize you're kidding yourself, but you're not going to kid God. Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. So we as Americans and people in the church don't consider that we have idols. And yet there are so many things we've covered many times that we let get between us and God. And then self becomes an idol because we put ourselves in our desires, our wants, our needs, our feelings ahead of God. And that's so simple, we, every one of us, probably do it in one form or fashion every day that goes by. In some ways, we put ourselves above God in His way. Our thoughts are not His thoughts, for instance. And we can think all kinds of thoughts that are ungodly thoughts, if nothing more than just selfish thoughts. And that is idolatry in itself. So any of us could fall in this category, not that we live a life of worshiping idols, uh, and we're trying not to be that way, but it's so easy to break the first commandment. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them that have poured forth or poured a drink offering, you have offered a meal offering. Should I receive comfort in these? In other words, you're just floating on down the stream. Uh, it's like the, the, the stream bed has smooth rocks in it. You can just float along like everything's just fine. You're not feeling the bumps. You're not feeling the hurt. Uh, and you... Pour a drink offering, offer a meal offering, you give lip service to God, like everything is fine, but it's not that way. It's real easy to drift downstream and not fight against the current. Should I receive comfort in these? God says, am I going to, after all his effort and what he's doing, is he going to find Comfort in those that are just kind of floating along, going down, following the water and the current. Upon a lofty and high mountain have you set your bed. Even there went you up to offer sacrifice. Well, we, we look for the comforts. We want to live high, you know, lofty and on a mountain. Live high, be comfortable. Does this sound like Americans today? <laughs> you know, it's, it's ancient language in a way, but... It fits the way we do in metaphor. Um, Behind the doors also in the posts have you set up your remembrance, for you have discovered yourself to another than me and are gone up. So he says, you go behind the door, shut the door behind you, and do the things that you're doing. Uh, But it's not about me, it's about yourselves and your sins, and of course he talks of Israel as having many lovers around the world, and we, if we follow the ways of the world, he considers that adulterous against him, because it's contrary to his purpose, and he is to be, or Christ is to be our, our, uh, 
our husband, we're engaged to him, and yet if we go and prostrate ourselves before this world, um, this is what he's talking about. Though you have enlarged your bed and made you a covenant with them, made, made the bed big enough for all kinds of lovers, all kinds of sins, you loved their bed where you saw it. And you went to the king with ointment and did increase your perfumes and did send your messengers far off and did debase yourself even to the grave. So we can perfume ourselves up. We can take our bath and, and prepare ourselves uh, for our love affair with the world. You were wearied in the greatness of your way. Uh, and don't we get weary and tired aren't people in the world even who do not try to serve God weary and tired of life life is frustrating even though we have plenty in the land or have had it's fast disappearing but we've lived pretty comfortably and yet it hasn't made us happy as a people and in the church we've tried our, to make ourselves comfortable and nod off to sleep. And yet we haven't said there is no hope. You found the life of your hand, therefore you are not grieved. So we, we, we sought after comforts, our desires, our wants, our ways, and we haven't recognized really that there is no hope under those conditions. We're not willing to admit that the way we're going is not the way we ought to be going. So I, I think this is a very good indictment against not only physical Israel, but spiritual Israel, the church as a whole, that people are just not awake and aware of what's going on. They still got their ticket punched to Petra or whatever and don't realize that the way they are living is not what God is after. woke up in Worldwide, moved over a pew and sat right back down, went right back to sleep. That's what most people have done. I keep yelling at you and yelling at me, mostly me, and I don't want us to be comfortable and go back to sleep. You know, all these scriptures add up, don't they? And God keeps warning over and over and over again, don't you dare do that. Don't get comfortable. And think that everything's okay. He's saying it isn't. Verse 11, And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and have not remembered me, nor laid it to your heart? Have not I held my peace even of old, and you feared me not? God says, I give you space, I give you room, I've, I've kept silent, and then you don't fear me. You just go ahead and do your thing. Despite the words that I've put here and all the examples of the past, you just go on like I wasn't even here. You acknowledge me, you know, you give me lip service, but where's your heart? And that's what he's after. I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they shall not profit you. God says, all right, I'll, I'll tell you all about your righteousness. I'll tell you all about all your works, but what I have to say isn't going to help you a whole lot. You're not going to want to hear what I have to say about you. 
And that's where we as a church found ourselves. We got ourselves spewed out and everybody blamed somebody else instead of themselves. I am fully culpable. I am the reason the church fell apart. I am the reason God spewed the church out. It's my fault. I'm somebody else. I'm not a Philadelphian and okay and they're the problem. No. Daryl did it. I'm just as, just as guilty as anybody else. And if we are willing to recognize that and then try to do something, or not try, but do something about it, then change can come. But until you acknowledge something, as all the Alcoholics Anonymous and all the help groups and so on for every addiction there is or every problem there is, what do they always tell people when they come? If you don't admit it, if you don't know you got a problem, you can't solve it. You've got to come to face with reality. And when you come to grips with that, then you got a chance. But we love to deny the truth. We'll lie to ourselves. Well, God says, if you want me to declare it, <laughs> it's not going to help you a whole lot. It won't profit you. When you cry, let your companies deliver you. I'm not. Let your friends, let your relatives deliver you. I won't. But the wind shall carry them all away. They can't help you. They're in the same boat. You know, tornado's going to hit them too. Vanity shall take them. If we trust in ourselves and our pride and our abilities, the vain things that we look to, it's not going to help us. But he that puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. His holy mountain is Jerusalem and Zion, as I said last night. The heavenly Jerusalem is coming down, and we will inherit the earth, we'll rule on the earth, and we'll rule from Jerusalem, the holy mountain. And you shall say, cast you up, cast you up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Now, here's the recurrent theme again from Isaiah 40, where he says, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Clear a path, make way, so that God has a place that he can go. You know, if you're headed somewhere, uh, you want to reach a destination, it's best to stay on the road going right to it, isn't it? If you try to go cross-country, yeah, on the map it may be shorter going cross-country, but if there's no road, it takes you a lot longer to get there. So, in like manner, if God wants to come to His people, we should do our best to make it easy for Him to come to us. We don't want to make it difficult for Him. Now, that's an analogy but if we are obedient, if we're serving, if we're surrendered to Him and to His ways, it makes His job of coming to us a whole lot easier. But if we're rebellious and stiff-necked and selfish, then we're not preparing a way for Him to come to us. So that's really what He's talking about. He doesn't necessarily want us out here building a highway. He doesn't want us here... Uh, taking rocks out of, you know, he doesn't, 
he doesn't really need a road. He's spirit. He can go anywhere he wants at whatever speed he wants. He can go above the rocks. So this obviously has to be some other kind of rock he's talking about. Well, what stumbling blocks do we keep in God's way? Well, thou shalt not commit idolatry. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. You know, go down the list. If we're breaking His precepts, His commandments, His principles, His way of life, putting ourselves ahead of each other, and He says how we treat each other is how He will treat us. So if we want to take a stumbling block out of His way, we take the knife out of each other's back and hug straight on. We show love face to face. And he says, if you'll treat each other that way, then you're making my way of coming to you easier. You're taking the stumbling, spiritual stumbling blocks out of the way. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Let's, let's understand who we're talking to here, he says. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So he says, I'm going to dwell with those that are contrite, those that are humble, and have the attitude of wanting to help and strengthen others who are becoming humble and contrite. So he's looking right now for us to be humble and contrite, not proud, not vain, not egotistical, not having our feelings hurt when somebody steps on our toes and tries to guide or correct us or whatever, but humbly seeking guidance and correction. You know, our vanity gets in our way an awful lot, doesn't it? How do we react when somebody tries to help us or criticize us in any way? Boy, our hackles can come up so fast, it's unbelievable. So he wants people that are teachable, who are willing to learn whose vanity and pride doesn't get in the way of instruction. And he says, I will use those then to instruct those who become humble and contrite. Well, what's it going to take for those to become that way? The tribulation, the seven last plagues, the trouble that is about to break forth on the earth is what it's going to take to make them humble. And if we have become that way, he says, he'll dwell with us and we'll help him teach those who have been made humble by the horrible conditions they've just gone through. So he's looking for a few people now who are willing to help remove the stumbling blocks and prepare a way for him to come. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always angry. For the Spirit should fail before me in the souls which I have made. I, I think of this verse pretty often. Uh, it, it has always stuck out to me in studying this section. God says His anger endures for a moment. He told us in Isaiah 54 that it would just be, well, verse 8, In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you. So He tells us that in spiritual terms of his plan, his anger will be short-lived. 
And that should give us hope because we've seen the church fall apart. Uh, we've seen a couple of decades now of confusion and frustration. Um, but that really in the pages of history is a pretty short while, even though it seems like a long time to us and even to the world and what's about to happen. Uh, if you read the prophecies carefully, even the physical agony is not going to last too long. God will bring it fiercely and of short duration. But most of the population of the earth is going to die during that period of time. And when they are resurrected in the great white throne judgment, they're going to have a totally different attitude than they have today. So uh, the humbling process is going to be very difficult. And it has been for you and me, hasn't it? It's been wearying. It's been emotionally difficult for us and hard to see our way, and not knowing exactly what God wanted in many cases. Uh, so he says, I, I, I can't stay angry, otherwise you guys are just going to all give up and say forget it. <laughs> and he's going to intervene and bless and turn his face, forgive and shine upon us before we just get to the point we say, it's just not worth it, I give up. So, this will be lifted soon. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I angry, and smote him. I hid me, and was angry. And he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. Back up a moment and think about it. Here we were, called out of the world, into God's church, into the truth, and... God let the wheels come off. He let it start coming apart. And the majority of those who had been in the church, well, many went right back into Babylon with the Tkachas. And those who then remained faithful to the truth only moved over a little bit and kept on doing exactly what they had been doing. Well, what's the point of God vomiting us out if we kind of brush ourselves off and then go back to doing exactly what we were doing when He spewed us. Does that make any sense? You know, the, the major groups went back saying, well, we'll just stick with everything Herbert Armstrong did. We won't change much or anything. Uh, we'll still do it the same way we did. We'll still make a big deal out of the silent offering, the jingly offering, and the competition. It's, it, and it hasn't changed from pray, pay, stay, and obey, or whatever words you want to use there. It just didn't change. And they're still, well, let's go back to preaching the gospel. Let's go back to printing magazines. Let's just keep doing what we were doing. Duh! Wasn't God seeking some kind of change by what He did to us? As I've said many times, I cannot settle for what I was when I was in Worldwide. God didn't settle for it. He didn't like me like I was at all. He spewed me out. Therefore, there must be some major changes that need to be made. I mean, there's... You know, physically speaking, there's light nausea, 
You know, you can kind of get an upset tummy. And yeah, it'll kind of pass. It's not that big a deal for the most part. Drink some milk or take your Alka-Seltzer, whatever you do. It isn't that big a deal if you get a little nauseated. And then there comes that feeling deep down in there where you feel like, I could upchuck. But you might be able to bite it back. But there, there comes a point you get so sick of whatever is in your tummy that you just go in and barf. Doesn't sound pleasant, I understand. But God was mildly upset. Then he got feeling pretty queasy. And then he just turned it loose and spewed us out of his mouth. He was pretty sick of us. He couldn't look at it anymore. Didn't want the smell, didn't want the look. Right there on the ground. So for somebody to say, we're doing everything just the way Herbert Armstrong did. We're carrying on the tradition. I picked up Elijah's mantle. I'm Elisha now. Follow me and everything will be okay. I'm going to do it just like Herbert Armstrong said. And you listen to his TV broadcast. And all you, you don't hear anything about God very often. All you see is Herbert Armstrong up there. That's one. Another says, I'm reproducing all the booklets just like he made them. Uh, we'll have our Y-O-U and our Y-E-S in our summer camps, and, and we'll do things just the way they were done then. How much cry for deep, abiding repentance is there throughout the church today? How many really, truly cry aloud and spare not? Not very many. Let's keep the status quo, just like it was in Worldwide. God will not settle for that, brethren. If God puked when he looked at me, then I need to look at myself and say, what made him puke? What do I need to change that caused that? What can I do that will make his tummy feel good about me? Obviously, some changes needed to be made. You know, we, he spewed us out, and then he hid from us, and I was angry. And he says, you just went on the same way you were. You didn't change anything. What good did that do? I have seen his ways and will heal him. So he says, here just a few chapters from here, we're deceitful and desperately wicked, like menstruous cloths. And he said, I've seen the way you are. But your righteousness is going away, and it will be my righteousness, last verse of chapter 54. So he said, I'll heal what's been wrong with you. We have to turn to him and seek his way, seek his word, study this book carefully to see what will please God. He was displeased. We read that, I think, last night or the day before. To do those things that please God. Wasn't that in the Psalms? Somewhere there by 102, 103, somewhere in there. Do those things which please God. Well, we displeased Him, so now it's time to take stock and say, what would please Him? What we were doing obviously did not. 
So, I think that calls for, what would you say, a radical change? Not just going on with the status quo, but really make some deep changes of some kind. Well, being half-hearted and half-asleep, instead of being on fire, full of energy and zeal, and doing things with our whole heart, or with our might, as David did, uh, would be a, a, a wonderful start. I mean, we had a lot of truth. We knew a lot. It's just that we weren't really living it the way we needed to be living it. And if we take stock today during the days of unleavened bread, even as we examined ourselves before, we'll find that we still have many faults and flaws. Somebody told me recently that we're just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, we all have a certain amount of hypocrisy in us. Uh, but hypocrisy to me indicates a, a flippant or light attitude and not being truly sincere about something and going ahead and, and giving it lip service and not taking it seriously. So I don't think here that we have a great deal of hypocrisy. I think most of us here are listening to strong sermons and instruction because we really do want to serve God. We really want to be what we ought to be, or we wouldn't be here putting up with this, would we? We'd go where they're talking smooth, easy things. So it's not, in that sense, hypocritical. We're not insincere about it. We really do want to do what's right, don't we? Shall we take a poll? I don't think you'd be here unless you wanted to do things right. So it's not really flippant or hypocritical in that sense. It's just weakness. It's being human and base. It's not being able to control our tongues. Somebody said, uh, well, all the tongue wagging that goes around here, it's just all hip hypocritical. Well, yeah, there's way too much tongue-wagging. I'll guarantee you that's true. But didn't James say if you control that one little organ, the tongue, you were a perfect man? And what he said was, no man can control the tongue. So we have a built-in imperfection, don't we? Now we've got to keep working at it. We can't just say, well, my tongue's, too, my tongue's bad, so I'll just go ahead and let her wag. Well, that's not the answer either. But I don't think you can condemn us all because we still have trouble controlling our tongues. We will probably have that difficulty until we're changed. Because we don't have perfect control of our minds and therefore we don't have perfect control of our tongues. So we have some built-in weaknesses. It's not hypocritical, and we don't really mean evil, I think, with a lot of things we say about each other. But we become judgmental and condemnative sometimes, and we need to learn to change that and not be that way. But it's, it's a life work. It's a constant thing that we have to control. I suspect most of us, in the course of a day, are probably going to say something we say, ooh, I wish I hadn't have said that, or I wish I'd have put that differently, or I wonder if I offended somebody by doing that. 
Or maybe we think about it a week later, for that matter. Oh, I wonder how somebody took that. I, I shouldn't have said that. Or somebody reminds us that we're a tongue-wagging, backstabbing gossip, and then it hits us. We say a lot of things sometimes we don't even recognize that was bad, and then later on, we get called on it. So God says, I'll heal him. I'll fix this. I'll make things better. If he pours out his Spirit upon us at some point, it's going to help us a lot to control ourselves. Because we're supposed to walk not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And the more of the Spirit of God we have, the better we're going to be able to control ourselves. I will lead him also and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. So we find ourselves in a mournful state. Uh, And God says, I'll fix that. I'll make it where you don't mourn. Don't we mourn to each other about our state and about how we wish things were different and how we hope God changes it soon? And we are mournful. Well, doesn't he say that blessed are those that mourn? We sigh and cry for the things that we see going on around us and even in ourselves because there's a lot to sigh and cry about. But he says those that sigh and cry and are concerned about what's going on instead of just blithely going through life and figuring I'm A-OK, the ones that recognize and feel badly about what's going on are the ones he's going to look to. I create the fruit of the lips. Well, God says... I'm going to change this. He gets it right back to what I just talked about, actually. Uh, the, the fruit of our lips is going to change. The things we say, the things we think. Uh, he's going to help us with these things. Peace, peace to him that is far off. And to him that is near, says the Eternal, and I will heal him. He says he's going to gather his faithful together. And though they are not perfect by any means... Uh, he says, again in Haggai 2.9, in, in this place will I bring peace. So where he gathers his people together and he comes to dwell and be with them, he's going to make it peaceful. Now, we, we're living essentially in peace here, but we disturb the peace ourselves, don't we? By the way we act and the way we do things and what we say. Well, he's going to give us help. So if we are contrite and humble and seeking to change, he says, I'll come and help those. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. You've probably been to the coast and seen stormy seas where there's heavy waters going every direction and crashing and confusion and cold and, and uh, they can wipe you out and pull you to sea. Now, you can go on a, be on a tropical atoll or a reef, and you have gentle waves lapping the white sandy beach, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But if you get on a beach where there's 20, 30, 40 foot waves crashing, and it's cold and windy and dark, it's, it's a very scary situation. He says, that's the way the wicked are. Can't rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt, the churning seas, mud and, and sand and and, and trees and rocks and various things it churns up uh, that are a danger. And it's just not a peaceful thing. So that's the way the wicked are. They just create trouble. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked.
Well, let's, uh, we've got a little time. Uh, let's hit 58, uh, I think, briefly. I don't want to go into it in great detail. Because we've been through this chapter quite a few times and, and analyzed it because it is, it, it's a pivotal chapter and it's a very important chapter. But I don't want to spend a lot of time, so let's take 5, 10, 15 minutes here and, and, uh, and review it in the light of these days and what's going on and what we're trying to accomplish right now. Here he says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins. So this is a time, and remember we are reviewing here uh, from chapter 39 where Herbert Armstrong's uh, reign ended, and beginning in chapter 40, the end time uh, work of God leading up to the gathering of the remnant and the building of the temple and all that, that's the context we're in. So this applies right now. It's, it's a very timely thing. I mean, this scripture, again, has been here for thousands of years, and, and anybody could have picked it up in 1400 and said, God says, cry aloud and spare not. Well, it would have been true any time you read it if you're dealing with human beings. Human beings need to be told. But it is particularly timing or timely right now because it is in the context of this section of Scripture which is referring to today. And the church, which is... All ten virgins, it says, essentially fast asleep. And when you see trouble coming, and you know the end is near, and you see people snoozing along, that's the time to scream, wake up. Take stock. Be aware. Be alert. Uh, judgment is now upon us, and judgment is fast coming to a close. We don't have much more time. So it's time to shout from the rooftops and show my people their transgression. Most in the church today that are left, I think I can safely say this, don't really grasp what their transgression is. The lay of the sin, self-righteous, lackadaisical, I guess I'm okay since I'm here. The leader says if I'm in this group, then this is the right place to be and everything's fine. I don't think we dare look at it that way. I can't tell you because you're in this group, you're fine. I'm not fine. How could you be? Okay? We all have to learn to put our whole heart into serving our Father in heaven. And we need to have it pointed out what our transgressions are. You know, I don't have to dream it up. All I have to do is keep going through these scriptures. You know, he tells us pretty clearly what the problems are. But if you don't go through these scriptures and read them and comment on them and expound them, and sometimes loudly, people aren't going to get the message. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways 
as a nation or a people that did righteousness and forsook, forsook not the ordinance of their God. It's a lip service thing, but the heart isn't in it. We go through the motions. Well, it's time to go to the feast. Where shall we go? Will it be a nice place where we can go to Disney World? Will it be a nice place where we can listen to country music? Will it be a nice place where we can, uh, you know, entertain ourselves? Or would it be a remote place, a beautiful place that God created where we can seek the eternal and worship the King, the Lord of hosts? Well, this is my second tithe and I'm going to enjoy it, buddy. And I'm going to go to these on this cruise ship. or You know, we went to all kinds of things where we could entertain ourselves and kind of forget God. You know, as soon as the closing prayer hit the beach or before the closing prayer. A lot of people are on the beach through the service. That's gone on a lot. You know, what are we there for? We're there because we saved 10%. Now we're going to have ourselves a vacation, you better believe. So, we knew God. We knew of God. We knew His truth. As a nation that did righteousness, they take delight in approaching to God. Yeah, we're God's church and everything's fine. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and you don't see? God, don't you see our righteousness? We, we fast, we pray, we study, we do all these things. Then the Pharisees fast twice in a week. Something comes to mind, a man I, I knew for many, many years, and I, I never once was around him. You could be up till midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, playing music, sitting around a campfire, whatever. Next morning, five, six o'clock, there he was at the kitchen table studying his Bible. If he ever missed a day, I never saw it. So faithful in reading this book every morning. I think he prayed regularly too, but I saw the Bible study any time I was around him. and was there early in the day. Tkachas took the church back to its base in Babylon, threw the truth out the window, and he went right with them. I thought, what did, what did he learn all those decades of studying the Bible faithfully every day? And it never took, somehow. So we can do that. That's what he's saying here. We fasted, why don't you see it? We studied, we've been good boys and girls. Why'd you spew us out? Well, we weren't as good as I guess we thought we were. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. If it doesn't do any good, there are a lot of people. You know, there are people who can actually quote this whole Bible, who have photographic memories. They can quote you any passage anywhere. They can just sit down and read the Bible in their mind, out their mouth, without ever looking at it. There are people who can do that and don't understand a word they're reading. Well, we're weak in base. But if we have God's Spirit and His understanding, we can read it, we can get it, we can apply it to ourselves, and hopefully understand it. But how often in God's church today 
Can you go back to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Chronicles or somewhere and see how it fits the church? There's not much of that. You people see that. But it won't do us any good unless we do something about it. If we're just, if we're just going through the motions. He says, why have we afflicted ourselves and you take no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exact all your labors. You go ahead and do your, your fast, but you go ahead and do what you want to do and think the way you want to think. That's the way the Pharisees were. Fasting didn't do them a bit of good. They were still serpents and snakes and, and uh, sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with a fist of wickedness. In other words, it's for selfish desires and to get ahead and to get answers for what you want, not truly to draw close to God. He says, this is, this is the way I want you to fast, to brag about that. You know, we're not here to tell people how much we pray, when we pray, that we were praying, that we were studying, uh, I don't necessarily want to hear it. Well, uh, I'm, I'm praying. Well, if you can't get to the phone, just say, hey, I was busy. I'll think you were in the bathroom, you know. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, we need to be careful that we don't try to project how righteous we are by how much we pray and how much we fast. God says, go in your closet. Just, you know, get out of sight. Do those things with God that you need to do, and then come out and treat men the way you ought to treat them. But the Pharisees like to brag about how much they prayed, how much they fasted, all the things, they did, and it didn't do them a bit of good. God says you lose all the value when you get vain and egotistical and proud about it. it, it it's not accomplishing anything because it isn't changing your attitude. So, yeah, uh, we need to show not by our words, I'm praying. We need to show by the way we act that we do pray. That we read God's Word and we take heed and we follow it. All, all the talk to God or to each other about, well, I've been fasting or I just prayed, uh, means nothing unless it shows the fruit. And God says, hide your prayer. Show me the fruit. I don't care. I want to see the fruit. That's what he's saying here. Yeah, you can afflict your soul. You can bow down your head like a bulrush and spread sackcloth and ashes like the Pharisees did. And he says, this is not an acceptable fast. You can go hungry all you want, but if it's done out of pride or vanity or for a vain show, it means nothing. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? You're fasting not to appear to men to fast. You're fasting to loose the bands of your, your wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to get close to God, in other words, to seek forgiveness, to seek help in overcoming sins, weaknesses, and problems. And to let the oppressed go free, and you break every yoke. Didn't he tell us back in chapter 52 to break the yoke of Babylon off our neck and not let them walk over us anymore, but to sit up and take stock and not let them reign over us? That's what he's saying here. 
He's repeating what he said earlier in a little different way. But we're here to fast to actually break sin off our necks and off our backs. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house? When you see the naked that you cover him, that you hide not yourself from your own flesh. Deceive yourself, in other words, about the effect of your fasting and your devotion and your prayer and your study. God said, or Christ said very clearly, keep that to yourself. Just show me the fruits. That's all I want to see. If it doesn't, you can pray and fast and study from now till the cows come home. But if it doesn't change your conduct, it hasn't done you a bit of good. You're just wasting your time. Pharisees did a lot of it, and they just wasted their time. But if you'll do this, if you will take care of others and serve and give and help and devote your life to being a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1, he says, then it does some good. He says, if you do it that way, then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of God will come behind you. And gather you up. So then it accomplishes something. Then you shall call, and the eternal shall answer. You shall cry, and you shall say, Here I am. If you take away the midst from the midst of you the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. Well, I've been praying. What's wrong with you? And if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted, this could be physically and or spiritually or both. If you do this, your light will rise in obscurity and your darkness be as the noonday. Because then you're walking in the light of God. You're doing the things He wants done. And He will provide light. And He will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of waters, of water whose waters fail not. Continually giving life-giving fluid to others. And then he says, and this fits in with what we've all been studying for quite some time. Uh, and they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. So he's calling on us now to live this way, to be this way. And then he's going to use us to help restore the whole world. If we will do it. What a high calling that is to be of use in teaching the whole world how to live so that they can be happy. And then he brings in the Sabbath again. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, or quit walking on the Sabbath. Now this is talking to converted people here. Cry aloud, show my people their transgressions. So he's talking to people who are already keeping the Sabbath here, not Baptists and Methodists. He's talking to us. Get your foot off my Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day. We're not to be entertaining ourselves on the Sabbath in the various ways that people entertain themselves. And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the eternal, honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. And I think that we all infringe upon this, uh, maybe not always, but certainly from time to time. It's easy at potluck or whatever to get our minds off on various things, 
that don't pertain to God or the Sabbath or the things that we need to have our minds on. We can start talking about just purely physical, mundane, everything, everyday things. You know, cars, the kind of clothes we want to buy or our jobs or whatever. Things that don't pertain to the Sabbath rest. It's so easy to go those places. Now, that, not that we can't kid each other and visit and so on and in fellowship together. But he's saying, be careful. Don't walk on my Sabbath. Keep your, keep your thinking along profitable lines. It's not there just to party. You know, if you want to party, party Saturday night or Sunday or Wednesday evening. It, it doesn't matter, but this isn't the time for that. Then shall you delight yourself in the eternal. So, proper, proper Sabbath keeping means that we delight in God and therefore He delights in us. And if we do it that way, I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Give us the blessings that He gave Jacob originally. Now, he gave them, but then because of transgression, He took them away, sent Israel into captivity. He allowed us to come back here where we originated uh, and gave us this land which had lain desolate for the most part for many generations. The soil was rich. The land was in that sense essentially virgin. The people that were here that he left behind were hunters and gatherers and did very little agriculture or, or mining or anything of that nature. They were just kind of here. When God let Israel come back, we began to use the blessings that God had left here in this promised land. And then we did what? We fouled it all up, misused it, polluted it, turned from God, and here we are today. So he's saying, turn this around, and then I will give you the heritage that I had originally given Jacob. What has he told us back in these other chapters, 51, 52, 3, 4, 5? He's told us, I'm going to restore the Garden of Eden and the Garden of God to you. I'm going to make the promised land like it was when Adam and Eve were here and when I gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Most of it's going into slavery and misuse and abuse by the New World Order, the beast, divided apparently into four pieces, and the pollution and misuse is going to continue. But to you who will obey me and live truly righteous instead of pretending, I will use you, and I will give you the heritage of Jacob. But what a promise if we will do our part. All right, I took longer than I said, so let's quit there. <laughs>